Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and gather together and look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we examine your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Kings chapter 19. We left off with uh, Elijah uh, calling down fire in, on Mount Carmel that burned up the altar and all the, all the sacrifices. They killed 450 uh, prophets of Baal. Uh, Elijah told him that rain was coming after three and a half years, that rain would be coming. He went up on the mountain, prayed until rain came. He told Eli uh, Ahab to hurry back before his... Uh, back to Jezreel before his uh, uh, chariot would not be able to make the trip. And then we looked at it, and in the very end, God gave him strength, and he outran the chariot to Jezreel. And that's where we left off. Uh, so at verse 19, chapter 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not take your life as you as make your life as one of the lives of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw, saw that, he arose and, and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. All right. He gets out... Jezebel, the queen, hears from Ahab that uh, Elijah has killed 450 prophets of all, probably told him all about the fire falling down and all of this, and she gets angry, probably as angry at Ahab as she is at, as, as uh, Elijah, because her question probably is going to be, well, why did you let this happen in the first place? You know, you had an entire army. Why would you let this man do this? And then she decides to call down a curse upon Elijah. And this is kind of an interesting thing because she says, Jezebel in verse 2 says, send a message to Elijah and say, so let the gods do to me and more also if I make not your life as one of those of them by tomorrow about this time. So this is a curse that she is calling down. I am going to kill you, and if I don't, I deserve what I'm going to get. All right? Kind of a strange curse. She, she is absolutely convinced that they haven't been able to find Elijah for three and a half years, but that she's going to be able to send the army out and kill him by tomorrow. All right? The funny thing is about this is... In chapter 21, 22, there's actually a prophecy saying that the dogs will eat her, her flesh and drink up, drink up the blood that she has. And that is going to be fulfilled in 2 Kings chapter 9. We see the fulfillment of it, uh, verses 30 through 37. So she says, I'm, I deserve to die if you don't die. And then God says, okay, fine, you're going to die. Just takes a little longer. So we see here, this is kind of an interesting thing. She goes, you, I am so angry at you, I deserve to die if you don't die. And you're going to die by tomorrow. And you think about this, her husband and her had been looking for him for three and a half years. Three and a half years earlier, he said it's not going to rain for, until I say so. And we just looked at the beginning of last chapter. They were looking for him for, th for three and a half years. Couldn't find him. Nobody, could, nobody tracked him down. God hid him very well. Uh, and he never got turned in by anybody for reward or anything. And she all of a sudden says, well, you're here now, so I'm going to make sure you're dead by tomorrow. In response, <laughs> he runs for his life. Uh, it seems like he likes to run away. <laughs> in many cases. In this case, he runs from Jezreel to Beersheba. Jezreel is up in the northern kingdom, and Beersheba is way down in the southern part of the kingdom. It's about 70 miles that he, that he, that he runs away from Jezebel by. Um, and this guy's a track star. He, he does it very quickly. Um, he outran the, outran the chariot. Which again, it's, rain, it's raining, so the chariot is not going at full force, but it's still a good big deal to outrun horses and a chariot to, to the capital. Uh, and now he's going to run away 
to go to Jezreel. Uh, excuse me, Beersheba from Jezreel. Uh, and it's approximately 70 miles or so as the crow flies. <laughs> How hard he had to run might be another story. Uh, but he runs and he says he leaves his servant in Beersheba. It says he left him there and I believe it's talking about Beersheba. It could be that he left his servant in Jezreel, but I believe it's Beersheba that he leaves his servant in. All right, verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. My father's. And as he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, behold, there was a cake baked on, on coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because your, the journey is too great for you. And he arose and did eat and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. All right, so he gets to Beersheba. And this is why I think he left his servant there because he goes another day outside of Beersheba. So that would mean, at the speed he's doing, who knows how far he went, but usually the normal day's journey would have been 10 to 20 miles for an individual on foot. And at that time could be as much as 30. So he goes out, goes under a tree, and says, God, I want to die. This is a man who has been faithful to God for three and a half years with the widow of Zarephath, being fed at the brook, goes up, challenges the, the prophets of Baal, makes fun of them, challenges them, calls down fire. Jezebel says, I want to kill you, and he runs off and says, God, kill me. He also resurrected a kid. No, he's resurrected, yeah, he's resurrected a person. He's, you know, he's done all these miracles. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, and he runs away and says, God, just kill me. And, you know, we, say, we understand, I, I don't want to make too much fun of him. Jezebel is a wicked woman. When she said she was going to kill him, he knew darn well that she meant to put the entire armed forces of, of the kingdom at her disposal to kill, to kill him. He knew that she meant it. She called down a curse upon herself. So, much, so be it on me if you, don't, if you don't die by tomorrow. So he runs. This is something that is very important for us to understand as Christians as well. Many times after a big spiritual victory, we will fall flat on our face for, for lots of reasons. Sometimes it's like, okay, God, you did such a great thing. I'm just, look how good I am. And we get a little proud somehow thinking it's us and that we did something. And we end up falling flat on our face because we take our eyes off of God. And this happens over and over. You go to a big event, a big event, a ladies' event, a men's, re men's retreat, a marriage retreat, uh, you know, and you come back and you're on, you're on cloud nine with God and everything's good and Satan knocks your feet right underneath you and you go, okay, God, what happened here? And I, I thought everything was good between us. Now look at where we're at. And this is where Elijah's at right now. He just wants to die. He goes, God, I, I, you know, I had victory over here. I, I killed a whole bunch of these bad prophets. He didn't get all of them. Remember, he didn't get the 400 prophets of Estora because they are Jezebels and they didn't follow the command of the king. So he didn't get them. And Jezebel comes and says, I, I, I'm going to kill you. And all of a sudden, all that victory that he's been having goes out the window. And again, don't judge him too harshly because we do the same thing. Every time something big happens in our life, if we're not careful, we end up getting our feet knocked under our, uh, from under us and go, wow, God, you know, what, what happened? I thought, I thought you and I were best buds. We were, everything was going good. I was on an emotional high. And those are the times when God's saying, are you going to trust me? God says, I haven't changed between the, the high mountaintop experience and this valley that you just found yourself in, I have not changed. Are you going to still trust me? And this is why it's important that we learn that we must trust God by his word, not by our feelings. Too many people go, well, I, I feel like God's on my side. Everything is good. I'm, I'm wonderful. 
The next morning, oh God, I don't know what's happened. I feel terrible. You must not be, you must not be here. You must not be on my side. Things aren't going well. We must grab hold of the word and say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's made promises to us that he will always be with us. And he's made promises that we are in him and that he is our strong tower. And all these promises that we have so that when we are on that downside, when we don't feel like God loves us, we go back to the word and say, God, you still love me. When I don't feel like everything is going good for me, I go back to God's word saying, all things work together for good, and God is sovereign, that God has his plan. Our, our Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not into your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. You know, whatever verse it is that we grab hold of, we go back and say, God, I am just going to hold on to you because I don't feel it right now. And this is important that we learn to not walk by feelings. If we walk by feelings in our Christian walk, we're in trouble. Uh, one, one of the very first things I had when I was discipled, they had this little engine car and they had facts, uh, facts, feelings, and um, what was it? Huh? Facts, faith, and feelings. All right. And it says the engine was, fa uh, was facts. You, you put our, our hope in the facts of God. Then we have the faith in those facts. And the, very, the caboose was the feelings. We have to understand it's great when we have those good feelings. It's wonderful. God, I feel good. You and I are on the same side. Everything's going well. But we need to have trust and faith in God whether the feelings are there or not. And that's tough. It really is tough to have those feelings sometimes because you look and go, man, God, you know, everything's, especially if it takes a long time. It's not bad if it's only when you're up one day and you're down one day and you're back up one day, but you get into that time where nothing seems to be going right and your feelings just aren't there for weeks, maybe months, <laughs> maybe it's a year. You know, we think of poor Job. We don't know how long he was, be, you know, beat up by Satan, but long enough to be several weeks, if not months, that he was down. No feelings whatsoever for God. And eventually he even got worn down, especially with the help of his friends, telling them how bad he was. He was doing pretty good until they showed up. Uh, and Satan is real good about pe putting people in our path to help build us up and make us feel miserable. <laughs> and make us doubt God because our feelings get pushed down. This is when it becomes important on, am I focused on his word? And this is why I say, find the verses that make it. For me, it's Romans 8, 28. That is my, that is my verse when, when all hell is breaking loose in my life. I grab hold of Romans 8, 28. For some people, it's, it's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. For, for other people, it could be any number of verses that, that they grab hold of. Whatever is something that means something to you, use it. When everything seems to be going wrong, you say, God, <laughs> you're, you're still in charge. <laughs> you, your promises still are yea and amen. I may not feel it, but I'm your child. I'm, you have bought me with a price. You have adopted me into the family. You have not disowned me just because I don't feel like I'm in your family. And this is something we can use, you know, um, if you remember growing up, there may have been times when you feel like you didn't belong to your family. Now, some people I do know had bad families who told them they didn't belong either. But if you have a good family, you always belong to that family. And even if you had a bad family, you still always belong to that family unless you're legally disowned by that family. You're, that is your family. That is how God is. He's made us part of his family. And he does not disown us just because we don't feel like he's, he's around. And this is important. Elijah, a man of God, a powerful man of God, doing all kinds of miracles, standing for God is in a pity party because Jezebel threatened his life. And he runs off and has a pity party. God, just kill me. Yeah, just kill me. Kill me before Jezebel gets here. Just, just get it over with. I don't want to be worrying about her anymore. You just, you just finish off the job. And the angel, and he goes to sleep. And an angel wakes him up and says, here's some bread and water. And you, know, you can see how tired he is. He eats the bread and water and goes right back to sleep. And the angel comes back and gives him more bread and water. 
and says, your strength isn't ready for the now. And it says, in the strength of that second meal, he makes a 40-day trip. And apparently, the way it says, in the strength of that meal, he was on a fast for 40 days on this, on this next trip. He's going to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. So he's going to go where God gave Moses and the people the Ten Commandments. Now, obviously, back then, they knew where Mount Horeb was. Today, we don't seem to know where it's at. Nobody seems to fully know. We have suspicions where it is. He went on a 40-day trip, so that means he's gone approximately 800 to 1,200 miles into the Sinai Peninsula, you know, the Saudi Arabia. That would take him anywhere from the middle to the end of, <laughs> end of the peninsula. Um, if you watch some of the newer shows, we believe that Mount Sinai is somewhere in the, in the center part of, of Arabia, and there's good evidences of that. It definitely is not where Constantine's mother-in-law said that it was, down at the bottom of the peninsula. It's too far away from the, from the Mount Sinai. And you got to understand how she, how she figured it out. She wandered around places and, got, and said that God told her where things were. She, she had no proof. It just, this is, she'd walk around and say, this is the mountain. This is this place. This is where Jesus, you know, she was the one who walked around and just said, you know, she was so spirit-filled that she knew, knew where everything was. <laughs> uh, so that's how they picked that Mount Sinai that is celebrated in the very far eastern part of Saudi Arabia. It doesn't fit any of the descriptions of the Bible. <laughs> it's too far for the, for the time frame for them to be marching to it. Um, but that is what was picked. Um, so we want to look at this. He spends 40 days to get to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, where God gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. And he gets there, and he finds a cave, uh, verse 9. And when he came thither to a cave, he lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, of, of, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your pro prophets by, with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. All right. This is his, one thing we see about Elijah. He likes to whine. Okay, this is about the third time we've now seen this statement. I'm the only one, God. I'm the only one. And God says, you know, hey, what are you doing here in Mount Horeb? Which is kind of when God asks you why you're someplace, that's going to have to trigger some ideas of he is not where he's supposed to be. God never told him to go to Mount Horeb by this question. You know, why are you here? And his answer is kind of interesting. You know, God, I have been very jealous or zealous for you. All right? You know, like God didn't know. <laughs> uh, God, I have been very zealous for you and for, you know, uh, and for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've forsaken your laws. They've forsaken your rules. They have torn down your idols and they have slain your prophets. So he's laying out a really bad case, which also tells us, because he keeps repeating these phrases, what is he focused on? All the bad. He is not focused on any of the stuff that God is doing through him. He is not focused on the fact that God has fed him at the brook, brook until it dried up. He's not focused on being fed by the, by the miracle at the widow of Zarephath. He's not focused on the resurrection. He's not focused on the God bringing down fire. He's focused on all the bad things going on in his life. He's not looking at God being sovereign. All he's looking, he's having a pity party. And the problem with a pity party is once you get into it, all you see is the black bad going on around you without somebody coming in and prodding you and paying attention. And even then you don't listen to him most of the time. And this is where Elijah's at right now. He is in the midst of a pity party. God, you know, your people have, you know, have left you. They've destroyed the altars. They've killed all the prophets. Now, we know that he even knows that this is a lie. 
Obadiah had told him, I have kept 100 prophets and been feeding them. And yet this is the third time that he's been telling people, including God, I'm the only one. He is so deep in the pity party that he is forgetting truth. And this is why it's important for us to always keep focused on truth. Because our emotions can tear us apart. This is why when we talk to people in, in our country that get, keep going to divorce, they're having a hard time in their marriage. They forget why they loved each other. All they're looking at is all the bad things going on in their life. And if we can find the, find the way to get them to remember, why did you marry this person in the first place? Well, I was in love with them. Why did you love them? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and that's important to get to. Because when a marriage is re-salvaged for somebody, it's because they get back and they remember. They remember that they love each other, or at least they remember that they choose to love one another, which is, can be just as important. The truth of love is that I choose to love somebody. If I have chosen to love somebody, then it does not matter what happens because my relationship with them is not based on what I get out of it. It's my choice to stay in that relationship. This is God's love, unconditional love, or as I like to say better, objective love. We can trust the love of God because God says he loves us. He has chosen to love us, which means no matter what we do, no matter how good, no matter how bad, no matter how crazy we get, God will love us. Because he says he does. He says, I love you with an un eternal love that's unconditional. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. And then it tells us we love him because he first loved us. He shows us what love is. Our relationships with the body of Christ needs to be objective love. I will love people even when I'm being mistreated or feel like I'm being mistreated, whether it's right, actual mistreatment or just my feelings. I'm going to love the people because God loves them and I'm to love them through him objectively. Now, it is wonderful when you're loved back. It is easy to love people when you're loved back. But Jesus told us that we're to love our enemies and do good to those who despitefully use you. That's not easy. That is practicing God's love. God says to love, we choose to love. And that's the only way we're going to love an enemy is we choose to love them. Because when they're mean and nasty and, and unkind to us, our flesh is screaming, go get them. You know, go get them or stay as far away as possible, depending on, on who they are and who you are. And God is saying, I want you to show love to them. I want you to be kind to them just as I am being kind to you when you don't deserve it. Elijah is down deep in the pit, deep in the pit. He's in a pity party. He's forgetting that there are 100, at least 100 uh, other prophets that haven't bowed their knee according to Obadiah. God's going to tell him he has a lot more than that later on in this chapter. But he's in a pity party. And we've all been there where we've been in the middle of a pity party. May not be with God necessarily. It can be with anything. And we just know it's a dark place to be. And that's when we just have to grab hold of truth. And God is truth. And that will get us out of this. And God tells him something very interesting. He says, verse 11, he says, And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great wind and a strong rain, uh, a great and what strong wind rent the mountain and broke it into pieces, the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And a wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entering of the, entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him said, What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> All right. God displays his power to Elijah. Elijah is out there, and God says, Okay, 
you want to know who I am, Elijah. You want to know how to pay attention to me. It says, go out on the mountain and watch. And God displays himself in the wind so strong that it's knocking stones down and breaking stones down. I can't imagine how big a storm that is. I don't think I've seen too many stones. I've seen stones that might move a rock. But this says it was rending them, breaking them. That's a powerful windstorm that God produced. And God says, I'm not in the wind. God's not speaking to him. He sends an earthquake, shakes the whole mountain. And Elijah says, God, you're not here. Sends a fire. And he's not seeing God. And then he hears him in a still, small voice. Now, was God actually in the wind, the earthquake, and the fire? Absolutely. But his point was he wasn't speaking to Elijah through those things. All too often, we want to see big things. God, show me something big so I know it's you. When Jesus was walking the earth, they kept asking for signs. He fed 5,000 people, but that wasn't enough. They wanted to continue being fed. They wanted to see miracles. He heals the demoniac, and they're going, show us more healings. Man is never satisfied with the big events. God can show us event after event after event, and we will not be satisfied because as human beings in our flesh, we always, what have you done for me lately? All right, God, you did a big thing yesterday, but what, have you, what are you doing for me today? We need to be very careful of that attitude. This is what, this is God showing Elijah, you, you want to you see miracles. You want to see big things. I've already shown you big things. I fed you for, for a long, you know, I fed you by the brook and with the widow's Zarephath for three and a half years. That wasn't big enough. I gave you, I gave you, a, you know, resurrected this person. That wasn't big enough. I, I poured down fire upon the altar and, and you were able to kill these prophets. That wasn't big enough. So now he gives them a couple more signs saying, okay, great big windstorm. This isn't me. Earthquake, not me. Great big fire, not me. And then he speaks to him in a still, small voice. What does this tell us? We need to settle down and listen for God's voice. Many times we are just too busy to hear God doing our own thing in most cases. Elijah has run away from Jezebel. He's taken a 40-day 40 40 day trip plus the time it took him to get to Beersheba to get to Mount, Mount Horeb, and God's saying, what are you doing here? And he's so busy, he's not listening to God. When Jezebel threatened him, he didn't go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? God had told him when he, when he ran from Ahab to go, go to the brook and be fed. There's no indication in this story at all that he ever went to God and said, God, what do you want me to do? Jezebel, Jezebel threatened me, what do you want me to do? Jezebel may have been killed the, the day after she had told, made this curse upon them if he had stood his ground and God would have in, could have ended up taking her life. But he runs away and gives her extra time. Now, I can't guarantee that that would happen, but I believe that if he had stood his ground, said, God, what do you want me to do? Jezebel would have been dead. And a lot of these next stories would not have happened because she was the one that was pushing Ahab into deeper and deeper sin. And I'm sure Ahab, when he saw the fire fall from, the, from, the, from, from uh, God onto the uh, altar, was probably shaken up. His prophets couldn't call down fires, and they're supposed to be the great God Baal, and and they screamed and ha hollered and danced and cut and, and, and did all these things. And all Elijah did is God show, show him who's God. And the fire fell. Ahab is close to repentance at this point in time. I believe. I mean, I, I can't. But with him running away, it puts him back under the complete influence of his wife and directly moving out. And God's small voice said, what are you doing here? Now, at this point, you might think that he's getting the idea that maybe I'm not in the right place. Have you ever had God say to you on several occasions, what are you doing or why are you doing something? Usually through the word. We don't usually hear him in a voice. I've had it happen. Uh, God, I think I'm doing what you want. God says, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, what are you doing? After a while, you kind of get to the idea of, 
God, am I not doing what you want me to do? Um, so we have here God saying, Elijah, what are you doing here on this mountain? Why are you here? Verse 14. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Exactly what he told God the first time God asked him, what are you doing here? Yeah, and this is kind of an interesting thing. This is how far down he's going. He hasn't even recognized that he's, he doesn't recognize that he's lying to God because he knows that there's other prophets. He is deep into his pity party. And God says, the Lord said, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you come, anoint Hazael, the king over Syria, to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Saphat, of Abel-Mehulah, shall you anoint to be prophet in your in your room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazrael shall Jehu slay. And he that escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. This is God speaking to Elijah. He gives him instructions and tries to pull him out of his pity party. He says, I, you're here, you're not admitting that you, I didn't tell you to go here. He says, go return your way back to the wilderness to Damascus. In other words, you're not supposed to be here. Go back to where you're supposed to be. And this is what God will tell us all the time. When we run from wherever he wants us to be, he's going to say, go back. The application of this story really comes down to, if you don't feel like you're hearing from God, go back to the last thing you know God said to do, and did you complete it? Abraham stops at Haran. And if we look at the story, there's no, there's no scripture that references God talking to Abraham the whole time he's in Haran. He left Ur of Chaldees, stopped in Haran, and didn't get talked to until he went on his trip to, to the promised land. And as soon as he left, God started talking to him again. All right? We see all these different people that God says, go do what you're told to do. God does not change his mind. Jonah Go to, go to Nineveh and preach against it. No, God, I'm going the other direction. God, God gives him a nice submarine to come back uh, with, with a call to fish with digestive juices. <laughs> Comes back, he's, he's got to look terrible when he gets out of that fish. He's been in a fish for three days. The belly of a fish with all the digestive juices and everything running in, in that fish. His body had to have been bleached out and looked very bad. Now, and he gets out and ends up in Nineveh, where he's supposed to be. You know, he goes and does what he's supposed to do. And then he gripes to God because he's, God saves Nineveh. Uh, you know, so he was quite a character in himself. How many times in scriptures do we see that God calls people directly and almost makes them do what he's asked them to do? Abraham, you're, I'm not talking to you until you move out. Uh, Lot, you've got to get out of this city because you, you're righteous and I need you out of the city. And if you read carefully, the angels drag Lot, his wife, and his two daughters out of the city to, to, to get to safety. You know, we look at Moses. Moses just about had his arm twisted off for God to say, you're going to, all right, God, you know, I can't talk. Okay, fine, your brother will be your speech. And then we look and Moses is always the one speaking. You know, God still uses Moses the way he meant to use him. Nineveh with Jonah, we see this, you know, this story here of, of, of uh, Elisha, Elijah being pushed back where he belongs. Over and over again, we see Saul of Tarsus, you know, knocked off his horse, blinded. Saul, you're going to follow me. Technically, he could have said no, but nobody in their right mind would say no. Nobody in their right mind, if they were in Jonah's place, was going to say no been in the belly of a fish, and you're going to tell God, no, I'm not going to go to Nineveh now? You know, uh, Moses, you know, 
fiery verse, all the miracles that he's in, his brother shows up just like God says, so they go. You know, God has a way of getting us to do. We see somebody like Gideon. Gideon says, you know, hey, I can't fight these people. God says, oh, just go down and listen to what they're saying about you. And they're, and they're in fear of Gideon. Why? All he did was tear down a, tear down a statue. <laughs> and somehow that reputation got out that he was the warrior for God. And the people were terrified of him because of visions and dreams that they had. And he goes down and hears all that and gets, gets emboldened to, to do what he's supposed to do. We need to be able to stand up for God and say, God, I just want to do what you want me to do. Learn to listen. And it's not easy sometimes because God asks us to do some crazy things sometimes. You know, uh, you know it, it may even be something simple. You know, I just want you to give this, say this to this person. God, that makes absolutely no sense. Well, it will to them. Believe me, I've learned the hard way. I say something that totally sounds silly and stupid. And the person goes, well, that's just what I needed to hear that. I'm going, you needed to hear whatever. You know, it just, you know, um, my dad had an experience where he went to, he brought somebody to church and told him, you never know what you're going to see at church. And the guy goes, well, I bet I'm not going to see line dancing. Well, the, the singing group decided in the middle of their song spontaneously to do a line dance. This church did not like dancing in church. This wasn't a charismatic uh, church where you would see dancing going on and these guys just broke out into a line dance in the middle of their, of their song. You know, why? Because that person needed to see something <laughs> that they thought they would never see in a church. We never know. And God may say, I want you just to say this to this person. And you go, God, that's, that's silly. Why would I? Maybe they were praying. Maybe they want to know something's real. Maybe it is just something that will mean something to them that you have no idea what it would mean. We need to be able to step out and listen to God's still, small voice. And God says, go back. Go back to Damascus. That's going to be another 40-day trip to get back to Damascus. Because that's where he started from. Well, actually he started from Beersheba, but Damascus is just about the same distance if he went that a straight line. So he's, he's going back another 40 days to get back to where he was supposed to start. How many times have you done just that? And I, I know I have. I have gone long way out of my path for God to bring me back to where I was supposed to be in the first place. You know, uh, and I've seen people literally do what, what, Job is, uh, what uh, Elijah's done, drive hundreds of miles, thousands of miles, only for God to say, get back where you were supposed to be. So now you drive hundreds of thousands of miles back to where you were supposed to be, so you just wasted a lot of time, a lot of fuel, effort on your car, and now you get to go back and start what God told you to start in the first place. So, and he's got some very specific instructions. He says, you're to go to Damascus in Syria and anoint Haziel king over Syria. This is kind of an interesting thing. Elijah has no authority, humanly speaking, to go to Syria and to anoint a king. All right? They don't even follow the king, the, the God of, of Israel. And he's going to go to Syria and say, find this man and go, God anoints you king. And he's going to become king. He does become king. Then he's going to go into the northern kingdom and he's going to find a man named Jehu and anoint him king over Israel. Jehu will become the next king at the end of Ahab's life. Again, you have a situation where neither Ahab nor Jezebel recognize the God of Israel, but the God of Israel says, go anoint a king. Why? Because he's God. It doesn't matter... When God is God, it doesn't matter who recognizes him and who doesn't recognize him. God does not cease to be God just because somebody doesn't recognize him. He doesn't cease to be king of kings and lord of lords because somebody ceases to acknowledge him. All right? he, Jesus is, doesn't cease to be the, our savior and the lord and God just because people go they don't believe in him. It doesn't matter. Truth is truth whether people believe it or not, whether we believe it or not. 
he, truth is truth. This is why when we talk to people, our answer for everything is the truth of the word of God. How do we witness to somebody is real simple. You're a lost sinner. You deserve hell. Jesus died for your sins. You must accept him to be, be made perfect. Plain and simple. It does not matter whether they believe it. It does not matter whether it's accepted by them. It is the truth, and that's how we witness to them. I'm not going to argue somebody out of their religion, because if I argue them out, somebody else that's smarter than me is going to come around right around behind and argue them back in to their religion. I can give them answers. I can help them, but truth it has to be spoken. I have to get to the place where they recognize they're a sinner. That is lifting up the mirror of God's word. God says, you shall not lie, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit fornication, you shall not covet, you, know, you shall not have any other gods before you, you shall not blaspheme, we, whatever, one of those, whatever one of those laws you want to hold up to them, because we've all failed all of the Ten Commandments. Especially when we take Jesus's, because people go, well, I never murdered anybody. Well, Jesus said, if you're angry without reason, you've murdered in your heart. Because, and we know, if you've ever been angry enough that if you really thought you could get away with it, you would do what your heart was wanting to do, to kill them. You know, and so we know that that is how our heart feels. And we hold up the, the mirror of God's word to people and let them know they're a sinner. Then we let them know that the wages of sin is death, eternal death. And we can't be afraid of telling people that hell is their destiny without Jesus. This is something that is very important because many people are afraid to take that stand. But that is what they have to know the destination. And people go, well, you're just trying to scare people into heaven. So be it. If that's, if that's what you want to think, and I, and I have no problem. Now, I'm not going to scare little kids that way, but, you know, they still, the kids need to know that the destination without God is eternally separation and punishment without God. But, you know, if I scare the hell out of people to get them into heaven, that's fine. I have no problem with it because I don't want them in hell. So if my picture of hell teaches them, don't go there, I don't want to go there, I don't care that worked. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. And we need to be able to understand part of the salvation message is if you reject God because of your sin, your destination is hell. That is what you have earned. But the gift of God is eternal life. And we need to be able to be bold with these statements. You know, and it doesn't go over well sometimes. You know, and it, you have to say it with love. You know, most people, when they first get saved, they go to their family and go, you've got to get saved, you're headed to hell. You know, that may not be the, quite the best approach. <laughs> it's a true approach. It is, it is the gospel message. But it doesn't go over well, when, especially when it's mom and dad. Mom and dad, you've got to get saved because you're going to hell. Uh, that doesn't go over well with them. Um, it, you know, so we need to approach it with love and with care. And it's, it's very simple. We bring them up and say, these are God's laws. Have you committed them? Yes. Then you are a sinner. You are destined for hell because hell is the wages of sin. Yeah. And we just do it that simple. Not attack, not, not, not blast them out of the water, but just real simple. You've admitted you're a sinner. This is the destination for sinners. You know, and the funny thing about it is, you know, for us, for human beings to go to hell, we don't belong there. Hell was created for the angels, the fallen angels. Human beings were not designed to go to hell. But because of our disobedience, we get to go to hell if we don't receive Jesus Christ. And Elijah is being told, go to these places. God is God, even though, even though you're not there. And then he has this other one. He goes, and go find Elisha, the son of Siphat, the Abdelolohola, and you shall anoint him to be priest, uh, prophet after you. So how old is Elijah at this time? We don't know. But God is saying, we're getting ready to train the next generation. This is important for everybody who is a leader. Leaders need to start training the, their replacement. And I always believe this. My job is to train people up so that they can take my job. If they take my job, 
I have no problem with it. I've always told people there are plenty of jobs in, church, in, in this church and other churches. If God was to raise somebody up that would be a better pastor than I am and, and get them better than I am, praise God that they're there. I can do any number of things and I can, and I'm not, and I can be happy to do it. I can go someplace else. Who knows what God, what God would do? Uh, but you know, the important thing is God always raises up leaders. Uh, when somebody leaves, it's amazing. When somebody leaves a church and you go, wow, that person is so important. They are the children's department. They are the youth department. They are the evangelism department, whatever. You know, they can't be replaced. God says, you know, just watch what I've got. And you may go in a totally due direction. Everything may be different, but God's going to raise up at least one. And in my experience, I usually see two or three people raised up. So now instead of one person doing all the work, you've got a bunch of people doing the work, and God makes a great blessing out of it. Elijah is to go find Elisha and make him, anoint him to be the next prophet uh, in his place. And so, and then just to, just to help him out, oh, he gives a prophecy that Heziel is going to kill people. If anybody survives Heziel, Jeru, Jeru will kill them. And if, they, if Jeru doesn't kill them, Elisha. And I don't remember Elisha killing that many people. So I think Jehu got most of them. Um, and, and then just as a little kicker for him, he goes in verse 18, Yet have I left 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed their knee to Baal or kissed the idol. Part of their worship was to go up and kiss the idol to, to show your devotion to, to, the, to the God. He goes, all right, and, and by the way, and basically saying, and by the way, Elijah, you keep saying you're the only one. He doesn't remind him of Obadiah's 100, but he goes, I have kept, I have kept 7,000 people that are mine. Quit this belly aching pity party of, that you're giving to. And I don't think God said those words, but Billy, isn't that what he's telling him? Quit your belly aching, quit your pity party. I've got 7,000, so if you don't want to do it, I've got 7,000 to take your place. This is something we've always got to remember. God always has a remnant in place to take over. And this has been true all through history. God calls Moses to go to the, to the people in Egypt to call those that are repentant. God, all through the period of the judges, always had a remnant of people that were following after him. Elijah is told, I've got 7,000 people. We see at the end of the tribulation, at the beginning of the tribulation period, God calls 144,000 Jewish believers to preach. He's always got a remnant. Through the Middle Ages, when Catholicism was, was trying to destroy much of Christianity, there was a remnant that held on to the Bible and followed the Bible's teaching in spite of all. And some of them were inside the Catholic Church. Some of them were outside the Catholic Church. But there was a remnant following the word. There's always been a remnant. You know, in Russia and in, in, in China, communist countries, there was a remnant of followers that followed God in spite of all the attacks upon the church and, tried to and, and, and the people trying to destroy Christianity. Always a remnant. God always has a group of people. So if you are caught up, and I, I really challenge you, believe this, so that if Satan attacks you and says, well, you're the only one following God, get hold of these truths. There's always a remnant. Satan is lying to you. Grab hold of the truth and saying, I may feel like I'm the only one, but God has others. And this is why it's important to be in a good body fellowship of God so that you know that there are others worshiping God. Because you need, we need each other. When, because Satan is good. Satan is good at trying to isolate us. He'll get us thinking we're the only ones serving God, and then he'll isolate us from the rest of the church members that are following him and isolating and isolate us and really make us feel bad. And if we're not holding on to truth that God always has a remnant, then we will fall apart. And Elijah is being reminded, oh, just shut up about this being the only one. Go do what I've told you to do. And you know, it is hard when you're alone. 
Elijah has a hard, hard job. For three and a half years at least, he's been by himself. No encouragement. The greatest blessing that's going to come is he's going to have Elisha with him. He's going to have a partner to help him. When things get down, he's going to have a partner saying, God's on our side. God's on our side. God's on our side. God is with us. It is important for us to have partners. In the scriptures, we're told that two are better than one and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Mostly that's used for marriage, but it's for everything. I need a partner in what I do. I need support. And I get a third cord, God himself wrapped around that is even better. And this is important. When we fall, we need that person to be able to pull us up and say, let's go, let's get back up on your feet. Let's get moving. He's going to get this person in Elisha. Now, he's a trainer. He's a disciple of Elisha. But we're going to find out that Elisha is a powerful man of God in what he does. And he goes out and he finds Elisha. Verse 19. And he departed thence, and he found Elisha, the son of Saphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray you, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to, done to you? And he returned back from him, took the yoke of oxen, slew them, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave to the people, and they did eat. And he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. This is kind of an interesting exchange. We have Elisha out, and apparently he and, he and his family had some wealth. They've got 12 yoke of oxen, which means there's at least 24 oxen plowing their fields. That's a lot of, lot of oxen, a lot of field. And it says that Elijah was in the 12th one, so whichever one was the furthest or from him or the furthest back, he is plowing with these items. And Elijah comes by, and it says he doesn't even say anything to him. He just puts his mantle around him. Now, that is a custom that, have, that was out there. He's putting his mantle around him saying, you are, you are my successor. His outer coat, his outer, his outer jacket, cape, coat, whatever. He just walks by, walks by with his, no, not a, not a, not, not a fire, not a fire mantle, his coat, his, his outer coat. Just walks by him, puts the coat on and walks away. Apparently doesn't say a word because this means a lot. You are being given the authority that this represents. Uh, remember, Joseph was given a coat or a mantle of many colors to signify that he was somebody special, which made his brothers jealous. All right? He's just walking by. Just walks by. Here's, here's my coat. Walks away. It's up to Elisha what he's going to do at this point. And it says, Elisha ran after him. <laughs> uh, he understands what's going on on here. He leaves everything, runs over there, and he asks just one thing. He says, I pray you, let me go back and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will come, after, come back after you. Now, when I read this, I think about what Jesus told the people. You know, he who doesn't follow after me does not, you know, does not deserve to follow after me. Uh, you know, let the dead bury the dead. You know, you give him all kinds of comments. He's going, follow me because I have called you. And it's kind of interesting because Elijah tells him, go back, for what, have I done? What, have, what have I done for you? In other words, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything to deserve your loyalty. Either follow me or don't follow me. You know, if you want to go back, then, then God basically is saying, if, I went, if you go back, and, then God told me the wrong thing, and you're not the one to follow me. But he was told to anoint him. He hasn't quite anointed him yet. He just threw a coat on, over him. <laughs> um, and Elijah, Elisha returns back. You know, he doesn't go back all the way to his father and mother. Where does he go? He goes to the yoke of oxen that he was, was plowing with. He kills the oxen, starts a fire with the, the yoke and, and, the, and, the, and it all, and 
cooks the meat and gives it to all of his workers that are with him and anybody else, anybody else that's around there. It's kind of an interesting thing that he goes out and does. He is destroying, what, let's, let's put it this way, he's destroying Egypt using the terms of the children of Israel coming out and always wanting to go back to Egypt. He is destroying his opportunity to go back to what he had. He's killed the oxen and he's killed the equipment. He's saying, my old life is dead. I'm following after this new life. All right? We need to do the same thing. When God calls us to do something, we really need to do just what he's done. Destroy what, is, what might hold us back. Destroy what might tempt us to return. And this is very important. We've talked to several times. God asks you to give up your alcohol and you leave a bottle in the back closet just in case. No, you get rid of all of it. You know, uh, God, you're taking me out of my drugs. I'm going to keep this, this package way back in a corner just in case. I'm going to give myself some place to return to Egypt. That way, if things get hard, I can go back. Elisha is saying, I'm giving up all my old life. His parents probably weren't happy with him destroying the oxen and the, and the yoke. They probably didn't mind him following after Elijah, but destroying the ox and the, and the yoke probably didn't go over very well because oxen were expensive. Yokes were expensive. They were handmade for the animals that they were designed for usually. They were not inexpensive. They were very expensive. And he uses the yoke. He uses the plow and burns, uh, burns up the oxen and then serves the meat to everybody that's, that's out there. And then he leaves and says he ministers after Elijah. So he goes and he is the one helping Elijah. Now he's going to learn from Elijah. He's going to be discipled by Elijah. And remember, discipleship is important. Every one of us needs a person in our life that is our discipler that we look to, and that's the person we look to. That's the person we're getting our answers from, but more importantly, our example of how to live. Remember that Paul told the, told the, the, the churches, you follow after us as we follow after Jesus. We are your example. We showed you how to be forgiving. We showed you how to witness. Elisha is going to be following after Elijah and learning, learning how to be faithful, learning how to hear God, learning how to handle the, the word of God so that when he is taken and put in that place, he has been discipled. Now, not only should we be discipled by somebody, we should be discipling somebody where we're taking what we know and teaching them. And now, that doesn't have to be a real formal formal thing but there are no matter where we are in our walk with God we know more than somebody else and we can be able to train them with what we do know now that doesn't mean they may not someday get better my hope and prayer is that my kids will get further than me and maybe be teaching me someday you know that would be great because I've started them on a path of being discipled I have been discipled by several people, and I have a few people. There comes a point where you don't need to be discipled all the time because you're learning to feed yourself and grow. But, you know, I have people that I go to and say, you know what, I'm having this problem. What do you think about this situation or this, or this verse or, or what would you do in this area? And listen to their, to their advice. Does it mean I'm always going to follow their advice? Not necessarily, but I'm going to elicit other people's comments and, and thoughts about something because I respect them. You know, and we need, there are people in all of our lives that look at us and say, I respect this person. They have something that I don't have. And if you want to be discipled, whatever area you want to be discipled in, find somebody that's good at what it is. God, I want to learn how to pray. Go find somebody who's a prayer warrior and just spend once a week, once a month with them and just pray with them. 
God, I want to learn how to study the Bible better. Go find somebody who knows how to study the Bible and, and study with them once in a while. God, I want to learn how to do whatever it might be. Find somebody who is good at it, or at least appears to be good at it, and just ask them, can we get together once a week, once a month, uh, once every other week? Can we just spend time together? I want to learn what you know. Most people are going to be flattered by being asked. They might be humbled, especially just think about you. If you've got somebody going, I really think you're good at this. I want you to, would you just meet with me? You know, you might feel inadequate, but you'll also feel a little bit, okay, let's, let's do something. You know, do not get a false pride. Well, I, I have nothing to give you. If they're asking you, they're seeing something that they want you to be able to give them. And just take it for what it is. And say, sure, let's meet. You will probably learn as much from them as they're learning from you as well. Nothing is more fun than to teach somebody and watch them get excited. We watch somebody get excited about something. It gets me excited. I love being around new Christians that are excited about everything about God. Because I get more excited. It reminds me of what I used to do and how excited I used to be. And I can get excited just being around a new Christian and watching how excited they are. And go, God, you know what? I've lost some of that. Help me get that back. This is part of what's going to happen. As Elijah is teaching Elisha, he's going to see the excitement. He's going to be touched that, okay, yes, I have kind of slipped down a little bit. And Elisha is going to be quite a man of God in Elijah's place. Elisha has got great stories. Elisha asks for a double portion of the anointing on Elijah and gets it. When we start looking at his stories, I haven't verified this, but pretty much the stories I do know, he gets two miracles for every one of Elijah's miracles. He's going to resurrect two people. He's going to have you know, different things happen, you know, and he gets them in twos. And it's very funny to look and watch his life. He gets what he asked for. A double portion of Elijah's blessing. And yet Elijah is the one that gets all the credit and the, and the glory in, in the Hebrew religion. Uh, you know, he's the one that's lifted up as the great example. Why? Probably because he didn't die. <laughs> you know, pretty, good, pretty good standing. I mean, you had to do some pretty good things for God to take you home. Seems like he's only done it to two people so far. He's done it to Elijah and Enoch. They're the only two people that walked so close to God that he said, come on home. Now, we have another one coming up sometime soon in the future where all of Christians will be taken because we're entering into the wrath of God. But they were taken because God just chose to take them because probably they got to... Because Enoch's story was he walked with God and was not which means he was so close to God that God, you know, people make fun of it, and I kind of can picture this being, God says to Enoch, you know, you and I are so close, just come on up. You know, we're, we're not going to be separated anymore, just come on up. And Elijah seems to be that same type of person. He has his problems. All of us have problems. But God is going to tell him, okay, enough is enough, time to come home. And was it because he was good or maybe he was just so bad that he was? I don't know. I want to, I want to say that he was good because he, he honored God. Yes, he grumbled. Yes, he griped. Yes, he fell into to problems. But his problems are no worse than many of the great leaders of the church. Many of the great evangelists of, the, of our day and past have gone into great depression after evangelistic events because they're, they go, God, what did I do? Not enough people got saved. We had Spurgeon. Moody was really big on it. He would have a convention. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people would get saved, and he would go into depression for a month afterwards because not enough people got saved. And he's going, God, what did I do wrong? You know, it's like 10,000 people, you know, what? But Satan had his number. You know, and went after him. And people would have to come into his life and say, come on, you know, get back up with this. You, know, you, did, you did a great job. Thousands got saved. But, but somebody didn't. What, what about the person who died without, without making a decision? What, what if I said something wrong that caused it? And that was the way he thought. It is so easy to be falling into pity parties 
and we need each other. This is the great news that he's got Elisha now. Elisha's going to be able to keep him moving forward. So look at who is in your life. We need friends. We need equal friends too. We need to be discipling. We need to be discipled. And we just need friends who are there to lift us up and be accountable to. That we're not necessarily being discipled by or discipling. They're just friends that hold our hand and say, get back up here. You know, get back up. Get out of the pig pen. <laughs> quit, quit wallowing around in depression and get back up. Back up. Our disciplers should do that as well. But we also need those friends that aren't Job's friends that put you down for where you're at. Uh, Job did not have good friends. All right. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to stay focused on you and focused on truth always. That we do not fall down and stay fallen, Lord. That we have friends and, and disciples that will help lift us up. Keep us focused on you at all times. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin comes short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.